Welcome to Reverb. I'm Calvin Pollock. And I'm Alex Helberg. For today's show, we sat down with Dr. John Otto, Associate Professor of English right here at Carnegie Mellon. John studies propaganda, call-to-arms rhetoric, and intertextuality from the perspective of critical discourse studies. So this is a very timely conversation that we think you're all really going to enjoy. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, Calvin, it's funny that you mentioned critical discourse studies, uh, you know, because I've been considering this slightly different perspective lately. Oh, yeah? What's that? Well, I, I just feel like everyone's just too negative all the time, you know? Like, lighten up. So I'm starting a movement that I'm calling complementary discourse studies. Uh, all right. So, for instance, right now I'm working on a paper about how nice it is to say, hey, buddy, how you doing? You know, when you see your office mate in the morning. Okay, but I kind of think I see where you're going with this, but I want to know, like, how do you see this as contributing to the discipline of rhetoric? By being nice, Calvin. We could all stand to be a little nicer sometimes, couldn't we? Well, not in the face of grave inequality, endless war, and the destruction of the planet by climate change. Oh, whoa, whoa, man, you are bumming me out. Look, I get that, man. I just want you to see if maybe this conversation with John shows how important it is to engage critically with dark topics. As long as you promise me that for our next episode, we'll get into the finer arts of uh, praising your neighbor's landscaping. Okay, let's take it away. All right. So today we're excited to be sitting down with Dr. John Otto, Associate Professor of English at Carnegie Mellon University. John's research lies at the intersection of rhetorical studies and discourse analysis, with a primary focus on how powerful agents use language and other symbols to generate support for war. John is the author of Intertextuality and the 24-Hour News Cycle, and the recently released The Discourse of Propaganda. John, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Of course. So we wanted to start out with a question that deals with how some of our listeners might understand a word like propaganda, which is in the title of your latest Mm -hmm. book. So you write in your book that there are two main myths that shape how Americans tend to think about propaganda, that it, quote, only happens in totalitarian societies, and that it, quote, necessarily involves disinformation and chicanery. So in your view, what is wrong with those myths, and how else can we understand propaganda that's more useful? So you're right. Those are the two sort of popular myths. I don't know if your listeners subscribe to those myths or not, but I see them a lot in popular sort of uh, journalism about propaganda. So the first one is kind of never explicitly stated, but almost always implied by the way people use propaganda. In other words, when the New York Times, for example, talks about propaganda, almost always they're talking about propaganda that's coming from places like Russia or China or Venezuela or North Korea. And very often they'll then say something like, And we need the United States to counter this propaganda. We need Voice of America overseas. We need the United States to transmit the truth around the world because otherwise the the false information will get to the masses of the international community. So the obvious problem with this myth is that it's very Mm self-serving. The United States and all Western democracies produce propaganda. It doesn't just come from bad people. It comes from probably good people, too doesn't just come from totalitarian societies, but societies that allege to be democracies. Maybe they're not full-fledged democracies, but they allege to be democracies. And it doesn't just come from leaders of countries. It comes from the private sphere. It comes from Mm. commercial, privatized journalism entities, for example. And so when you only talk about propaganda as coming from totalitarian leaders, you take yourself off the hook. And so a journalist will never write 
well, I shouldn't say never, a journalist will very rarely write a story about the problem of propaganda in American journalism, mm -hmm. right? And people are not generally willing to sort of look in the mirror and say, I participate in spreading propaganda. Mm -hmm. And so I think maybe they should. The other myth has to do with the way propaganda works. And very often propaganda is reduced to a set of manipulative tactics. It's assumed to be disingenuous at best and outright lies at worst. And I'm not saying that propaganda can't have those features. A lot of propaganda certainly is built on lies and distortion and things like that. But there's other propaganda you can't really classify that way. So I know we're going to talk about the support our troops slogan. Mm -hmm. Support our troops is neither true nor false. It's a command. You can't say that's true. When you say support our troops, that would be a weird response to support <laughs> right. our troops. right? And yet I would still classify it as propaganda. Mm. And so we have to sort of think a little bit more about what is bad about propaganda. It's not necessarily lies, in my opinion, but it does have something to do with manipulation. Mm. And this manipulation doesn't always come in the form of outright fabrication. It can also just be a matter of something that's true coming to dominate. Right? So if one truth dominates the media landscape so much that other truths, other ways of understanding reality cannot be accessed or heard, I would say that that's a problem and it's a form of manipulation as well. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> that's kind of one of the, that gets at kind of one of the central tenets of your definition of propaganda, which is that it's undemocratic, right? This is quoting from you in that it serves the interests of the few while harming the interests of the many. So I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into that claim in particular. You know, why for you is this a crucial distinction from the way that others in the field of rhetorical studies or discourse analysis, as well as our popular imagination? Why is that an important distinction to make? Well, I think it's probably one of the more controversial, you know, claims I make in the book, frankly. And I think I was thinking a lot about propaganda. As you know, you guys had a class with me on propaganda. And it's sort of full hard. Full disclosure. Yeah. <laughs> yes, full disclosure. It's hard, it's hard to define propaganda mm -hmm. because you always rub up against the bad taste of the word propaganda. And it has a bad taste for a reason because words have a social history and people have usually used the word propaganda to refer to things that are bad in some way. And so it was sort of incumbent upon me to either say, well, no, propaganda is neutral and it can be good, and I didn't really like that route, yeah. or sort of define what we actually mean by bad, right? And if we're not going to say it's lies necessarily, then what makes propaganda sort of wrong? And the best I could come up with was sort of it's anti-democratic. And what I mean by that is it either denies the existence of or reduces the spectrum of diverse reasonable perspectives, or it disclaims certain perspectives as either subhuman or illegitimate, as it showcases its own perspective as the only one. And more generally, it's harmful. Right. <laughs> it's harmful to different groups. Mm -hmm. And so the basic notion here is that we cannot separate our discourse analysis from analysis of society. And if society were egalitarian through and through, then maybe all discourse would be equal in some way, and we could just say, well, lying is bad and telling the truth is good. But once we sort of analyze society and say, well, no, it's not equal, there are people with immense power, there are other people with less power, there are people who are getting killed and maimed in perpetual war, there's environmental degradation, right? And there are people who are more responsible for this militarism and environmental degradation than others. Then we sort of put propaganda in that matrix and say, well, propaganda is that which reinforces these bad things and harms these other sort of people who you know otherwise might have a better life so that's an explicitly political position it says 
yes, there's something wrong, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. Uh, and a propaganda analysis takes sides and says this group is being served by this discourse and this other group is being disserved. You just got disserved. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely put. I think that that's probably one of the most compelling features of that definition of propaganda in that it's, this is actually something that Calvin and I talked about on one of our earlier episodes where we were discussing our own sort of justification for like taking a stance on, you know, foreign policy issues that we were discussing. This was back when we mm-hmm. interviewed uh, Patty Dunmire back in episode two and discussed it in episode three, mm-hmm. where we stated our position as being one of, you know, we're trying to open up the the space for like further perspectives that don't often get articulated in mainstream discourse. So, you know, anti-interventionist or anti-war stances happen to be one of those that doesn't often get articulated. And as we're probably going to see as we talk about the support our troops slogan in a little bit here is very often it's reacted against pretty uh, in a pretty real way too. You make this point when you're defining propaganda at the beginning of the book that, and I think this relates to the part of your definition that Propaganda serves the few, the interests of the few and not the interests of the many. Right. You argue that even though a slogan like Black Lives Matter or I would presume abolish ICE, something like that, mm-hmm. that these slogans, they might share certain formal features with something like support our troops. You would not define them as propaganda. And I mean, is that entirely justified by that kind of contextual part that you build into the definition or is there anything else in your framework that justifies making that judgment call? Yeah, I I think it's mostly a contextual, political, moral component of the analysis Mm -hmm. to use, you know, the highfalutin language, I guess, which says basically take Black Lives Matter slogan. We have an historically disenfranchised group that exists or is located within a system of racism and oppression historically and continues to be so. And in order for that perspective to be heard in something like the public square, whatever we want to call that, I think the slogan is uh, quite apt. While I recognize at the same time you could say that it's manipulative, you could say that it doesn't allow for a back and forth kind of dialogue when you're shouting a slogan at a rally, for example. But to me, this is qualitatively different than supporter troops. It's qualitatively different than, you know, a president using the bully pulpit to sort of make a speech. There's a power differential, and you have a group that is suffering, and suffering at the hands of police and vigilantes, and suffering in a lot of other ways. And so, to me, I sort of say, this is civic rhetoric. This is rhetoric that makes society more completely democratic. Having these voices is necessary. They don't have another platform other Mm -hmm. than this sort of protest. They don't have access to media in order to have their voices heard. And yeah, I I think it sort of goes part and parcel with a political slash moral analysis. And I want to be very clear, and I take pains to try to make this point in the book, that you don't have to share my political outlook, right? right? So I'm not prescribing this definition on anybody. I'm saying, you know, I think it's impossible to define propaganda without also taking a stance on sort of politics and ethics. And so I wanted to be as transparent as I could about laying out what my stance is and what that entails. Absolutely. I do want to touch on the sort of socio-historical and political analysis that you do specifically with the Support Our Troops slogan a little bit later. I also, though, want to take a quick step back, as long as we're still on the definition of propaganda as you Mm -hmm. define it. 
to talk about another dimension that's unique to your approach, which is that it takes you know what you call an intertextual perspective yes. to analyzing propaganda. So could you talk a little bit about what that perspective means and what that affords people who want to analyze propaganda? Yeah, I can try. So, <laughs> sure. uh, so I looked at a lot of definitions of propaganda, a lot of theories of propaganda, and very often they have this kind of bounded rhetorical situation in mind. And right. what I mean by that is they have sort of the propagandist, and the propagandist delivers this discourse, and this discourse is generally manipulative, or you know, it's lies, whatever. And this elicits some kind of response from the audience. And if the desired response is one that only works in favor of the propagandist, then we have a pretty good indication that this is propaganda, if that makes sense. So yeah. if your discourse is sort of self-serving, targets a specific audience, and doesn't necessarily work in their favor, but does work in your favor if you get the response you desire, right. then that's something like propaganda. And the problem that I have with this kind of definition, well, there's a couple of problems. One is that it sort of treats discourse like it's this stable, rigid object that just gets passed along, right? So I take my discourse like a, like a baseball, I toss it at my audience, and I get some kind of effect. And some sort of theorists include the notion of an intermediary. So I take my baseball, I pass it through journalists, the journalists pass it on to the audience, mm -hmm. the audience experience some kind of effects. Well, you know, I have a long history of talking about discourse, and that's not how discourse works. Discourse doesn't just get passed along without changing. Right. It gets recontextualized. Mm -hmm. And recontextualization, as Perlinell teaches us, is never just the transfer of a meaning from one location to another, but the transformation of a meaning. Right. And so if it gets, say, if a president passes discourse on to journalists, the journalists are going to change that discourse as they report on what the president said. Mm -hmm. And then when the journalists pass it on to sort of news consumers, the <clears> news <throat> consumers are going to change that discourse, reinterpret it, reuse it for their own purposes. And so it's not any longer possible to talk about just one propagandist and one audience, right? The discourse gets passed from one person to the next person, and that next person becomes a propagandist in their own right. And so once you start to talk about this chain of communication, then you, it's really difficult also to talk about intention. Mm -hmm. The intention of the president is not the same as the intention of the journalist, is not the intention of you know, your Aunt Flo who gets the message on Twitter, right? right? They all have different intentions, but they all might keep spreading the propaganda. And this goes back to what we said earlier, you know, this unwillingness to want to look in the mirror. What this implies is that you and I could be propagandists, right? right. If we get something on Twitter and we pass it along without thinking, perhaps, we may be spreading propaganda in a sort of unwitting way. Now, we have a different degree of responsibility than, say, the deliberate propagandist who started the whole chain to begin with. Right. Right. But we still participate in keeping propaganda alive. And so it's something, it's not much less like tossing a baseball and then having the audience undergo some kind of effect or experience some level of feedback, which these are terms that are sometimes used. And it's much more like a game of telephone, Yeah, at least the way I conceive of propaganda. Doesn't this also imply that something like Black Lives Matter could become propaganda at some point along the intertextual chain? Yeah, what do you have in mind, Kelly? Well, yeah. I, I don't, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, if it becomes appropriated by, you know, an institution or an institutional speaker who does not have the interests of the many in mind. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I'm also thinking of another example of like, I mean, this is this is actually something I was discussing with my own students in a t class I teach on discourse analysis. We were discussing the Gillette ad that just came out a couple of weeks ago. 
and the ways in which, you know, it's drawing on, you know, the sort of discourse of, you know, like men need to be better, right? It's, Toxic masculinity. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's. I don't it's, know the ad. Like, oh, okay. So it's a Gillette's original catchphrase was always, you know, the best, the best, man, man, the best get. man can get. Well, so they've, right. they've transformed <clears throat> that in, in a way in their new advertisement, which is kind of a, a slew of images that are condemning toxic masculine culture so like boys picking on other boys for being you know a sissy uh or you know like behaving inappropriately with women and other things like that bullying the me too movement against sexual masculinity is this the best a man can get we can't hide from it it's been going on far too long we can't laugh it off Making the same old excuses. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. But something finally changed. Allegations regarding sexual assault. So they've changed their their slogan now to uh, the uh, the best men can be. Oh. Um, so anyway, how aspirational, right? So <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, all, some of my students did view it that way. We had like a couple of different readings that were circulating in the room. There was one that viewed the advertisement kind of as a public service announcement yeah. that's, you know, hey, time's up for, for men behaving like this. Right. And then another section of the class that was talking about, okay, this is just the appropriation of a discourse that's, you know, is working in the service of social justice and sexual, you know, justice. In order to sell raisins. Yes, precisely. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, well, as, as you guys know, I did take the Gillette slogan and make it part of my wedding vows because... <laughs> It just touched me so much. No. <laughs> no, I agree. Like, yeah, you can have discourse does get reappropriated and it gets transformed. And something that maybe starts out as being positive could be taken by another group and reused in ways that uh, are sort of antithetical to the original purpose. That's and absolutely a part of the theory. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, something that starts out as civic rhetoric could be reappropriated and become really toxic propaganda. And to me, this is another like great benefit of your approach that having that intertextual lens allows us to think more critically about rhetoric in general, that, you know, you can't just isolate a slogan and, you know, decide one way or the other, you know, through a kind of factual analysis, this is propaganda and this is not. You need to look at a larger context of discourse. You have to look at history, right? Bakhtin says that when you speak, you do not break the eternal silence of the universe. You are not the biblical Adam who is naming and categorizing reality in the virgin world. You're always taking words that taste of prior contexts. And you have to sort of take into account those prior contexts whenever you're using words or whenever you're analyzing when people are using words. Sorry, I'm so, teaching the intertextuality class, so Bakhtin's <laughs> on the mind. <laughs> That's actually, that is one of the quotes that always stays with me, too, that I feel like I repeat a lot, particularly because I've heard you say it in that sort of poetic way. Bakhtin's uh, that so Bakhtin Yeah, we'll throw yeah, some reverb on there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll punch it up in post. I think we can probably move into a discussion of what's covered in two chapters in your book, mm-hmm. the analysis of the slogan, Support Our Troops, which is something that a lot of our listeners are probably... I mean, if you're in in an American context, you are undoubtedly heard this. familiar with this. Yeah, um, I was just watching an, an episode of The Office, reruns yeah. of The Office, and I noticed the Supporter Troops ribbon magnet on the refrigerator in the office. No kidding. Go. No yeah, kidding. It's hard to miss. Yeah. You know, I guess it's easy to miss, but it, because it's so ubiquitous. So we see all of these traces of this slogan. You know, it's ubiquitous in American culture in a lot of different ways, not just as products and other things that that bear that slogan but it's also appearing in tv shows and other forms of media that do it as well so 
as we sort of embark on this, the, the journey of uh, support our troops as a slogan, can you talk a little bit, I guess, first and foremost about, you know, you treat this slogan in a couple of ways. You mm-hmm. historicize it and put it in its context of, you know, how it kind of developed. But you also talk about some of the linguistic features that make it, as you say, detachable, right. more able to be widely circulated and recontextualized. Could you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Yeah. So this goes back to the sort of notion of intertextuality. We can say that, you know, some discourse is maybe better prepared to live a life of propaganda right. mm-hmm. because of features that are you know, formal, that are linguistic, but also contextual, right? And the, so the Support Our Troops slogan is, is one of those. So it, it has a little bit of poetry to it, for example. Uh, it has like uh, the sounds of the letters, and we're getting into like poetry, like consonants, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a, it starts with like SP, it ends with like PS. There's like Support this Support Our Troops. That's yeah. right. You, yeah. you actually, you have this great phrase for it in the book. You call it phonemic chiasmus. I phonemic think, chiasmus. Which is, which is, that's exactly right. Yeah. So chiasmus is like parallelism plus inversion, right. right? So like ask not what your country can do for you. What you can do for your country. What you can do for your country, precisely. Right. So we have the parallelism, but we invert the terms. We have this sort of at the phonemic level with support our troops. The, the SP gets inverted to PS. The RT gets sort of converted to TR at the beginning of mm-hmm. troops. So there's that. It also, there's this balancing of stressed and unstressed sounds. Mm-hmm. And if you compare it to something, like it seems sort of, uh, I don't know, pedantic almost, but if you compare it to something like back our troops <coughs> right. or back right. our military, you can hear the difference. Supporter right. troops has a better ring, right. and that's part of its appeal. And this is a simple thing, but it is something that allows any slogan, you usually find these sort of oral poetic qualities that help to give it along. It's brief, it's to the point, it's poetic, that helps it become detachable and therefore repeatable. Beyond that, there's also some sort of underspecification that goes on semantically right. with support our troops. We never really told what support means. Uh, support <clears throat> could mean, you know, materially supporting people. It can mean just kind of saying, hey, I'm with you. Or it can mean, like, I agree with what you're doing and I support your sort of ideological mission. And so because it's underspecified, it's never hard to support our troops because you don't know what support our troops means. <laughs> right, right. Like Chomsky says, it's, it means the same as support the people of Iowa. Like, as long as right. the people that you're supporting are not, like, terrorists or something like that, then supporting people's good. Right. And so it's hard to be against it because support is underspecified. Right. And I talk also about, I don't know how much detail you want to get in here, but I talk about the the personal pronoun um, right. of our and the way that that creates a sort of common ground and suggests that when you deploy this slogan, there's a bit of identity shaping, if you mm-hmm. will, and indexing a sort of uh, consubstantial Americanness uh, that happens when you talk about support our troops. And so there's little rewards that come at the very most superficial level that come from repeating a slogan like this. And that's putting aside all of the historical associations that have kind of tethered themselves to the slogan. Right. And the fact that it is a command and not a claim right. makes it harder to disagree with. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 A command, it sort of creates in the utterance this sort of weird power relation where the preferred response is, yep, I'm going to support them, right? Or maybe I'm going <clears> to <throat> show that I support them by, you know, displaying, you know, similar kinds of paraphernalia, like, uh, you know, posters or ribbons or whatever. But you're right, it, it makes a difference whether it's a command or a statement. The command suggests that, you know, you should follow suit and do what you're told. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so like how has this been deployed by particularly presidential administrations during wartime? 
Well, we gotta we gotta go back to the late Vietnam War for like the very first utterance by a U.S. president. It was mm-hmm. Lyndon Johnson in 1967. He was the first president to utter the words "support our troops." And if we think about what was going on in like 1967, it was not a great time for the Vietnam War and and, and mm-hmm. Vietnam War proponents. Uh, there were massive demonstrations across the country. Martin Luther King was coming out against the war. Veterans were coming back from the war. Uh, thousands of veterans joined Vietnam, uh, veterans against the war, opposing the war in Vietnam. And so you can sort of see that the Support Our Troops slogan is a response to this sort of widespread anti-war sentiment. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's a great article on this that I'm very much indebted to in Rhetoric and Public Affairs by Roger Stahl. It's 2009. I can't remember the title, but you guys can link to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. we'll link it. Uh, and he says that there's two kind of tropes that go along, and you'll see these throughout the whole history. Support our tropes. That go along with support <laughs> our tropes. <laughs> Sorry. Support our tropes. It's um, okay. <laughs> one is uh, deflection, and this goes along with the kind of underspecification, right? When you're talking about support our troops, we're not talking about policy. We're not talking about the external justifications for war and why we're fighting and whether fighting is a good idea. So Johnson's earliest uses were like, we need to support our troops. We need to match their level of dedication. We need to give them what they need to emerge victorious in battle. And so it's very much about identifying with the soldiers on the battlefield, imagining their vulnerable bodies, imagining what might happen to them if we don't give them support, which in this context, more funding, more armor, more things to help them carry out their mission. And if you think about, again, the Vietnam context, huge numbers of troops were against the mission. So the idea that they were dedicated to the cause was false, but this was very effective. So that's deflection. We're not talking about why we're fighting or whether we need to be there, but we're talking about what the soldiers need. And if we don't give them what they need, it's like we're hurting them. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that's a really crucial part of in your in your description here what makes that slogan so effective and so hard to combat by right. anti-war advocates themselves right. because it becomes about in its in its historical usage from the origin point it's always been about individual troop members or like or troops themselves and not about the overall act of going to war or right. just the right. as yeah. a policy decision right that's precisely right. right you take policy off the table and you make it about bodies yes and then at the same time the other trope the sort of dual move here is what style calls dissociation and dissociation means making a clear demarcation between the troops and the troops are always associated with these extremely positive values like valor and courage and self-sacrifice and everything i mean i don't even have to say it it's so obvious in the culture whenever troops are talked about practically these kinds of words are used they are split from the dissenter the protester and the protester Mm -hmm. has opposite values the protester is selfish uh, and unkempt and not clean and definitely not decorous right Mm -hmm. and the dissenter according to Stalin, I agree with this analysis, also becomes a direct threat to the soldier's body, right? Not only are they sort of polar opposites in terms of their values, when you're dissenting against war, you are threatening the mission, you are threatening the soldier, you are becoming consubstantial with the enemy, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that's exactly what the enemy wants, is for you to dissent. You sound like uh, Ho Chi Minh or whoever the enemy of the day is mm-hmm. when you're dissenting against war and you're affecting morale and you're doing all these things that are harmful to the soldier. 
And later in the history of sort of pro-troops rhetoric, you'll see that they tell these kind of mythical narratives about how protesters were anti-troop. I say mythical because the evidence does not bear this out. The people who have studied what protesters were saying during the Vietnam War don't find that they were making comments that were critical of the troops themselves, but they find in the same analyses that the journalists are constantly talking about how the protesters are against the troops, mm-hmm. right? And then eventually you get these post-Vietnam sort of reflections, like the stabbed in the back narrative, which I talk a little bit about there. This is the notion that all sorts of people let down the troops. There was this need to explain what went wrong in Vietnam, right? Right, Vietnam syndrome. Vietnam yeah. syndrome was a big problem. Like people didn't want to go to war anymore, so that's were, so fascinating. They were diseased. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And so the notion was, how do we sort of get over Vietnam syndrome, but also how do we sort of explain where it comes from to begin with? Part of the explanation was the notion that we just we all let the troops down. They had a mission, but because our support was not vigorous at home, the troops failed. And lots of people were blamed for this. Journalists were blamed for this. Civilian leadership was blamed for this, but no one more than the protester. And so you get the the image come emerging around this time of protesters who allegedly spit on Vietnam veterans at mm-hmm. airports. The evidence for this. and this was put into a Rambo movie, right? Yeah, it was like well, dramatized in a Rambo movie. Rambo, the main character in a soliloquy, talks about you know people spitting on us. It's over, Johnny. It's over. Nothing is over. Nothing. You just don't turn it off. It wasn't my war. You asked me. I didn't ask you. And I did what I had to do to win. But somebody wouldn't let us win. And I come back to the world. And I see all those maggots at the airport. Protesting me. Spitting. Calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Who are they that protest me, huh? Who are they? Unless they've been me and been there and know what the hell they're yelling about. Yeah, and he he keeps this myth alive, but it's it's in the culture. There's a guy named Jerry Lemke who is a Vietnam veteran himself who investigated it in a nineteen ninety-eight book, if my years are accurate, and he just finds no evidence to actually support that the alleged spitting ever took place. The book is called The Spitting Image, I believe. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. Wow. And so now, it doesn't mean it didn't take place. It just doesn't. Right. It means there's not evidence. And if it did happen, it wasn't widespread, right? Mm-hmm. And you would expect, if this had really happened, if people were spitting on soldiers at an airport, that this would probably find its way into some newspapers. But we don't find those news accounts. Mm-hmm. But it does work very well with this idea of the protester as being anti-troop, as threatening the troop, as directly harming the troop as the troop comes home mm-hmm. from war. Yeah. So, so now we have a sense of kind of, I think what Adam Hodges calls kind of the indexical anchoring yes, of, the, yes. of the context, right? This is why this was the sort of original context for, you know, for the phrase that it indexes all these different meanings right. uh, that it had in that original context. So can you talk a little bit about how then that was meaningfully recontextualized, at least first by people in positions of power? And then we can maybe talk about how it kind of became, you know, diffused itself into the larger culture. Yeah, so you're right. So the notion here is indexicality, which basically means that language can't help but point to the contexts. Mm-hmm. And it, but what we said before about Bakhtin, particularly right. past context. Right. Right. And so if you keep saying a slogan like support our troops in a certain context, eventually the slogan itself becomes this kind of economical reminder of these larger narratives. Mm-hmm. So the support our troops comes to index these larger narratives about how troops were let down, how troops were betrayed, but also at the same time how troops are super heroic, how troops are valorous and decorous and all of those words, right? And by the time you get to the 
Persian Gulf War in the 1990s, this is just, this notion about troops is already in the culture. Those narratives are sitting there and they're kind of ready-made. Right. They've been in movies like Rambo. They've been just in speeches, especially by President Reagan. He continually talked about how great the troops were mm-hmm. and asked of America to sort of uh, thank the troops, kept talking about the troops had not been thanked, particularly Vietnam veterans. And so this notion that the troops had been let down, that we weren't gracious, that there was no gratitude, was very much just sort of at the ready by the time you get to like 1990. Right. Well, that's when the supporter troop slogan, as we really know it, really emerges and bursts onto the scene. And it becomes like, again, a response to something that's already there. It becomes, well, last time, i.e. in Vietnam, we didn't support the troops. Mm. We were mean to them. We spat on them. Mm-hmm. We were just awful. This time, we're going to do better. This time, we're going to support the troops. And it doesn't matter if you're against the war, uh, especially if you're against the war. There's a special responsibility for you to showcase your support for the troops. And we find this in a lot of the uh, sort of anti-war demonstrations, that they took it upon themselves to accept, one, that the troops had been abused and betrayed during Vietnam. They actually would say it in their own sort of anti-war demonstrations. And they would... They would sort of have to, add, they would sort of like Bill O'Reilly, like, you know, the host would say, you know, do you support our troops or something like that. Right. It was required if you were going to be anti-war to first answer this sort of charge, like, do you support our troops? And again, it's a response to this idea that the troops were let down and betrayed. So I guess as we move into the war on terror, one of the things you talk about in the book is how the slogan support our troops has come to permeate like consumer culture. Yes in various kinds of ways. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So again, there's a lot of sort of factors that go into this, right? Mm. So like t-shirts just used to be undershirts, right? Mm-hmm. right. Posters <laughs> just used to be like advertisements. Mm-hmm. Uh, bumper stickers used to be maybe for like presidential campaigns. But there comes a point in American culture where these things become sort of almost like hip, for lack of a better word. Mm. Like it's hip to buy a product that showcases a political or sort of cultural identity. Right. Uh, and this coincides with you know, what's going on in the larger political culture, as we just talked about, with troops, anti-troops, betrayal, Mm -hmm. uh, and the support of troops rhetoric. And so it's just a matter of time before one of the ways you can support our troops is to purchase a product that is inscribed with the words support our troops. Mm -hmm. And again, starting in 1990, you find T-shirts and bumper stickers and posters that are inscribed with those very words. Very often, as you see in my analysis, these get co-contextualized with indicators of Americanness, red, white, and blue kinds of colors, um, military kind of indices like military stenciling or camo, camo camouflage, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's lots of other sort of meanings being sort of overlain with the support our troops slogan that indicate Americanness, patriotism, and the like. And people are able to buy these and display them. And then you have this kind of social proof thing going on. In other words, once something is displayed widely, and you have proof that lots of other people are doing, there's a pressure to conform. And there's a pressure to sort of show you that you also support the troops by buying similar products or by displaying yellow ribbons, which have their own very interesting history that sort of go part and parcel with the supporter troops slogan as well. Right, yeah. And I think what what this kind of showcases really nicely, I know we, we want to talk about some examples specifically that you analyze here too, sure. but this is you know this kind of turn from a propaganda phrase being delivered from somebody in a position of power what's you know Jacques Ellul calls vertical propaganda right it's coming you know from people in power to those you know to the masses to something that is 
as you mentioned before, you know, it's spread by people themselves. They become like ordinary citizens become unwitting propaganda. Yeah, we could call it something like ordinary propaganda. It's yeah. not coming from on high. And I think it's actually more powerful when it's coming from your neighbors. Yeah. And at the same time, there's like this linguistic sort of transformation. So there's like a scale of recontextualization I talk about mm -hmm. in the book, you know. And so there's a difference between saying like, maybe we should support our troops, right? right. Uh, perhaps we should support our troops, mm -hmm. or somebody says we should support our troops, mm -hmm. to what the supporter troop slogan has become, which is like cultural touchstone, which is like assumption. Like, why doesn't Obama support our troops, right? Mm -hmm. It's presupposed that we all should be supporting our troops. And so, yeah, it's coming from the culture at large, and it has sort of transformed linguistically, not from claim or even command, but to presupposition of what we all ought to be doing. Right. And that's the most powerful kind of propaganda I think we have. And you talk about how that kind of propaganda is not even really propagandizing for a particular policy. It's right. more propagandizing for a set of values or a way of life. That's right. As I said before, it's very often co-contextualized with indices of Americanness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of claiming an American identity and appropriate American identity. I think one of the slogans I analyzed, I saw on a truck in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. It's one that we have pulled up. Yeah, right we now. want to talk about that <laughs> yeah. one next. And it's something like, maybe you could read it to me. Yeah, yeah. So this that. is the full text. So you have a, a square truck decal on the back of a central transport truck. And it's so it's a square poster that has the text, My USA supports our troops whenever we go, ellipsis. Then you have an American flag in the middle. Then no aid or comfort to the enemy. No way. Yeah. Yeah. And so there you see a couple of things going on, like my USA, right? My USA. The insistence that it's my USA suggests that there's maybe another USA that mm -hmm. somebody else is experiencing that is not an authentic or real American mm -hmm. identity, right? And then the no aid or comfort to the enemy, no way, is also this sort of implication that those people who aren't supporting the troops, as we said before, are directly harming them, are putting their bodies at risk, are aiding and comforting the enemy. This is a trope that goes back to lots of different, de lots of different places. Lots of different presidents have said something to that, to that effect. And as you said, the American flag is sitting there as well. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's a good example of this. And it's just sitting there on a truck in the middle of Michigan. And uh, I was happy to, to snap it on my iPhone. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I was like, where does this come from, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, obviously, it's it's more than supporting a policy too, because, you know, where I don't remember when I took that picture, like 2014. Is like, do we even know where our troops are in right. 2014? Right. Right. What war are we even supporting? It, and it doesn't matter. It, it says whenever matter. they where, go, whenever, whenever, they, yeah, yeah. wherever, whenever, whenever, right? Yep. Again, that intensity. It could just say when or mm -hmm. if they go. It's whenever yeah. they go, right? Yeah. It's that notion that. We don't have to think about policy, that the slogan works no matter what the context is, right? And I say this in the book, you know, supporter troops works in 1990, it works in 2018, mm -hmm. uh, because it has no anchorage other than the one you want it to have at that moment. And that's what part of what makes it so effective. Absolutely. Just as a comical juxtaposition, they, there's also another decal on there that's it's more of a safety one, but it says, caution, wide right turns, which <laughs> I just right. thought was a comedic. I, you don't comment on it at all in the book, which I think is exemplary restraint. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, you know. That's right. It's, it's, the signs are being uh, contextualized by each other. It's right. Yes. Ways <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. You talk about a TV commercial on Fox oh, um, yeah, yeah. that basically featured a bunch of the 
biggest stars from Fox's biggest shows at the time, mm-hmm. just kind of proclaiming their support for the troop. You've been there for us and we'll be there for you. You're America's best and we will stand by you and your family. We owe our freedom to you. We miss you and are grateful for your protection and bravery. Come home safely. We can never say or do enough to express all our gratitude for all that you do. But we want you to know that we're thinking about you and your families and that we're behind you every step of the way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, as I recall, this was on a a Friday night rerun of The Following, which I'm pretty sure has been canceled here. And I make the point that the whole uh, ad is ostensibly addressed to the troops. And it's like, we love you. I'm paraphrasing. You can right. find it in the book. Right. We miss you. We stand behind you every step of the way. The you is supposed to be troops, and the fact that they're missed and that they're not around suggests that they're overseas, that they're probably in harm's way. But who's watching an ad on Friday night in October or whatever it was of the following in a rerun? It's probably not the troops in wherever the hell the troops are now. Mm-hmm. It's probably people at home, right? And so what they're really doing is they are modeling an identity. And they are modeling the appropriate sort of wartime behavior, and that is to explicitly announce your support for the troops. Right. And they're doing it in part also to sell their brand, right? Yep. It's become such a presupposed value for American culture that just to do this helps you become more profitable, or mm-hmm. else they wouldn't be putting on this ad. Mm-hmm. It makes the stars seem more relatable and better as stars because they care about the troops. Mm-hmm. So it's it's amazingly taken for granted as common ground. Jane Lynch from Glee says, we can never say or do enough to express all our gratitude for all that you do, addressing the troops that you do. Yeah, a lot of sort of upscaled intensity in in a phrase like that. A lot of upscaled intensity and the the sort of implication that we haven't been thanking them enough, that it's impossible to thank the troops enough. When you Mm -hmm. see a troop, thank a troop. Yep. Right. Right. And then then there are other ones that are even more political. I can't remember if it's Kevin Bacon or something who says something that could be regarded like we owe our freedoms to you. We owe our freedom to you. Right. And so like, you know, the suggestion that all of our freedoms have been won for us by troops on a battlefield sort of flies in the face of like the feminist movement, the civil rights movement, just to name a couple. Right. It's sort of, again, sort of put out there without any sort of critical reflection as part of that common ground. I think we also wanted to talk a little bit about your Twitter analysis. Which oh, yeah, yeah. You do qu- quite an extensive analysis. Do you remember the size of your? I, I don't. There know were the eighteen thousand plus tweets that contained the words "support our troops," <laughs> and this was. I from, remember them pretty well now. Wow. I mean, you sampled two thousand seven through two thousand nine. Yeah, it was right. a small window, right. yeah. and Twitter was not huge in two thousand seven right. to two thousand nine, which explains maybe the relatively low number, although 18,000 is pretty big, yeah. And so my basic goal here, so we talked already about the indexical associations that attach to the supporter troops Mm -hmm. slogan. So when you're using it, you can't help but bring those things back up, Mm -hmm. right? right? All of that sort of pro-troop deflection and dissociation that we talked about, it gets brought up. But in order for the slogan to remain viable as propaganda, you have to recontextualize it in faithful ways. You have to make it continue to work in that direction. And so what I was interested in is to see how people are actually using this slogan when they have a little bit more freedom to maybe add other words and phrases around the three words of the slogan itself, right? right? Most support our troops merchandise literally just says support our troops. There's not that much there. Here you could sort of give reasons, for example, why we should support our troops. And a lot of the, the sloganeers did just that. And you see a lot of the same things coming up, like 
what I might call like need appeals, there's always this suggestion that the troops need to be supported, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Because they're either not getting what they need physically on the battlefield, or they're not getting the support and gratitude and comfort that they need from a society at home that should be paying them homage. And then there are other sorts of interesting appeals that we can get into. I'll let you ask me about them. But it was quite a diverse range of ways of saying, I support our troops or support our troops, most of which, almost all of which, continued to be faithful to those original associations. Yeah, I think one of the ones that we wanted to talk about that really illustrates well the unassailability of a phrase like this in the culture is what you call the the personal appeal. Mm-hmm. So this was one particularly that I know Calvin and I were drawn to, and it has a lot to do with what you were saying a little bit before, which is this kind of affective connection to, you know, hearing something from your neighbors or people that you know right. that makes this a sort of, you know, powerful... Right powerful statement that's hard to disagree with even even if you know you are you know an anti-war advocate or an anti-interventionist if you know you have a couple tweets like please support our troops my dad was one my sister is one and soon my little brother will be one support our troops and then at username lil bro i miss you hope you're okay another one getting worried about my sweetie in iraq haven't heard from him since easter sad face support support our our troops support our troops yep Yeah, and so the the personal appeal works basically by saying, I have a personal, intimate connection with troops, therefore support our troops. Yeah. Um, And you saw it right there. And so you see a lot of times like names that suggest a high degree of solidarity and intimacy, like cutie and bro, Mm -hmm. often negative emotion indicating that I miss you are in that sort of more heart-wrenching one, like I haven't heard from my hubby in a while and I'm worried. And so these things, they're heart-wrenching. They're the most effective of them all because these people do have personal stakes, right? And so how could you not want to support our troops? The point that I make largely about these kinds of appeals is that they're a nice sort of microcosm of how all the appeals really work, which is to say this is the sort of affective response we should all be taking, which is the sort of domestic sort of worrier you're at home and you're worried about the safety of the troops Mm -hmm. and you're not thinking about policy god forbid you're not thinking about the larger sort of political ramifications of the war you're not thinking about the civilians lord knows that are being harmed by the war you're thinking about the troops you're worried about them you want them to come home safe you don't want them to experience harm that it's real for these people i certainly have no criticism of these people i want to be very clear about that yeah totally but it's also sort of emblematic of the entire support our troops phenomenon, how the effective response we're all supposed to take, yeah. in my view. And then uh, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the counter appeal. You know, this is people kind of doing what all of that disciplinary rhetoric kind of implies they should do, which is if you want to be critical of the war, at least claim that you support the troops along with your critique. And so you have people using the slogan either ironically, conceding it and then countering it, or or critically reframing it. So can you talk about those examples a little bit? Yeah, so like the most common one of these is one you've sure you've heard, it's support our troops, bring them home. Something like that, right? Where we're taking the slogan, but we're adding this other kind of meaning to it there are others that are more like parody like i think my favorite in the whole corpus was like you know i support our troops i, I make out <laughs> I with make them out every time i see them that yeah. was the most yeah. favorited tweet in the whole right. corpus right uh-huh. 
as I, I sort of say in the book that, you know, they're, they're doing something different, obviously, with the slogan. It's not the sort of hegemonic meaning of support our troops, but they're also sort of conceding at the same time yeah. this need to support our troops and still therefore conceding this notion that the troops ought to be at the center of our consciousness when we're talking about wartime policy, that our, our concern first and foremost needs to be the troops and their safety. And I, and I think this is uh, a losing strategy in the end for reasons that we can get into. But yeah, I think it's, it's not the best way of sort of have taking on an anti-war or pro-peace kind of stance. Well, and part of that is due to the indexical associations Absolutely. of the phrase, right? When you, right. when anytime you use this phrase, you're bringing back all of the prior context in which it's been used to argue for war. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, if nothing else, you might just have audiences or listeners or interlocutors who are going to hear that and then kind of zone out for the rest of the tweet or the point you're trying to make and go, oh, well, this is a troop supporter. This is a good right. pro-war American, so I don't need to listen to the rest. That's right. And there's a whole segment of the population that doesn't believe that bringing the troops home is actually supporting them, right? right. right. Supporting them is helping them to carry out their mission. Supporting yes. them is to give them what they need. And so you lose the argument, say, if somebody just comes back and say, well, we'll give them better armor. You know, then we yeah. don't have to bring them home. Then right. they're safe. Yeah. Right. Right. So, okay. Or we use drones. Exactly. Yeah. We use weapons that make it impossible for the troops to be harmed. So the troops are fine. We still don't need to talk about the war and why we're fighting it. But don't worry, we've protected the troops. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not saying that this should be taken out of the arsenal completely. Like, I think, you know, sometimes the parody makes a point. But if this is sort of like your go-to kind of counter-argument, then you're going to lose it. Yeah. No, and I think it is, yeah, it is largely because of that indexical anchoring, as you Absolutely. were talking about. You're still talking about soldiers, individual troops, and their bodies, and not policy, which right. is the real thing. And all the, there are all these narratives, I didn't get into this before, but these movies that, you know, like Saving Private Ryan and Behind Enemy Lines, Roger mm -hmm. Stahl talks about this too, that are the way you save the troops that are in danger, right? Like this, there's this new aesthetic. So it used to be like Rambo was like the superhuman Hulk mm -hmm. and would just like, you know, flex his biceps and, you know, Viet Cong heads would explode or whatever. Right. You know? uh -huh. <laughs> uh, now the aesthetic is different. Now we have incredibly vulnerable human bodies, right? right? People like, you know, in Saving Private Ryan, you see the blood, you see them picking up their limbs. It's awful to behold, but you still have this pro-war sort of sentimentality at the same time. And that is sort of, built into the narratives because the way you get these soldiers out of harm's way is you send in more soldiers. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. We get to save Private Ryan. Private Ryan's going to die. We don't want him to die like all of his brothers. Mm -hmm. Let's get all these soldiers over there to save Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. And almost every war movie I can think of, I didn't think of it until I read that Roger Stahl article, sort of participates in this narrative. The way to save soldiers, the way to protect the troops is to send in more salvific troops. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you're if you're going to hold on to that sort of support our troops rhetoric, you're going to lose because they can always say, well, we'll support our troops by sending in more troops, not by bringing them home. Mm -hmm. Right. And that would be better because it's commensurate with their mission, which they all 100 percent support. That's right. So I think maybe a, a great place for us to kind of wrap up is continuing on this thread of tactics for anti-war rhetors. And mm -hmm. I did have kind of a, a thing that occurred to me when I was reading your book is that so you define propaganda largely through this kind of contextual political stance that yeah. discourse that benefits the few over the many is propaganda by definition. And so 
my question is if it's recontextualized if it's if it's recontextualized on a mass scale and and if it's you know manipulative manipulative so are there situations when peace advocates anti-war advocates are justified in using any of the propagandists tactics if those rhetorical interventions have good consequences for the many over the few. For instance, you mm-hmm. talk about scapegoating, that mm-hmm. scapegoating is a huge part of pro-war mm-hmm. propaganda. Increasingly, I think, on the left, people are taking a rather militant view towards Wall Street, Wall Street yeah. the 1%. Yeah, uh, themselves. Yeah, exactly, defense contractors. Is that legitimate? Is it likely to be successful? And you know, there's also us, us and them, yeah. identity construction, so the few and the many, right? The one percent and the ninety-nine percent. Yeah. So, what's your what's your take on these kinds of tactics and and whether they have potential or whether they're unnecessarily manipulative? So, I would say just as sort of a boilerplate, you got to look at a sort of case by case basis first of all. So, it's hard to sort of talk about hypothetical instances. Sure, but I'll say. It is certainly possible for people on the left, for pro-peace, pro-whatever, pro-social policy platform you support, to engage in tactics that I would find objectionable. So I think there are some clear cases where I think you've crossed a line. One would be like dehumanization, right? Uh, subspeciation when you start talking about animals and monsters or you just start blaming a group for all of your problems. They become the entirety of your argument, right? I think once you sort of place people outside of the circle of your compassion, once you inscribe that line and say, these people are not us, not just that I disagree with them, not just that I think that they're doing something wrong, but they're not human, right? Then you've crossed a very clear line to me. Now, again, there's some, there's some wiggle room before you get to dehumanization that is legitimate criticism, mm-hmm. right? And I think, you know, Martin Luther King called Bull Connor a racist. I right. don't think that therefore Martin Luther King created an us and them paradigm and has <laughs> violated a law, right, right. a moral law, right? But he didn't say that Bull Connor was a dog that needs to be neutered or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he used a lot of metaphors, but that wasn't one of them. Mm-hmm. And so there's a difference, and it's an important difference. And the other sort of red line I have or... You know, sort of line that I don't think should be crossed. I don't think you you can be hyperbolic to make a point, but I think if you're lying, if you're misleading people, if you're sort of saying something is true when it's not true, or getting them to think that it's true when it's not true, I think that crosses a line. But again, we have to place this analysis within a larger picture, right? And being a little bit hyperbolic, saying something that is maybe uh, untoward or even hostile when you have no power, I think is much more forgivable than when you have a military at your disposal, for example. I I think we have to sort of forgive people a little bit more depending on what their sort of station is, which isn't to say that you can't do something that's dangerous and and, uh, counterproductive and anti-democratic, even if you're fighting for something that's ostensibly good. You have to make a distinction, in my opinion, between a just cause and the means by which you pursue that cause. If you're using unjust means, then I think you've failed. And rhetoric is usually a means to an end. So you can use an unjust rhetoric to pursue something that we would agree is just. Right. So I think just one more real quick concluding notes. What advice would you have for people who aren't rhetorical analysts or discourse analysts for how to recognize and maybe actively combat propaganda in our everyday lives? 
I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> Recognition is hard because sometimes you don't know propaganda until you kind of discover that you, after the fact that you've been, you know, misled, that you've mm-hmm. been uh, buying into something that you shouldn't have been buying into. I think if you have a pretty good feeling that you recognize propaganda, that's step one and I commend you, but that's usually as far as people take it, and right. I think that's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. So, so much propaganda scholarship sort of says, look at this, this is bad, let's critique it, yep. and let's point out how it's bad, mm-hmm. and there's that's a service uh, to a certain extent, but it doesn't do anything to solve the problem. And so I think that the large long-term goal needs to be to replace propaganda with civic rhetoric, mm. and that means reframing events, not pointing out why something is bad, not reusing it for parodic effect and saying support our troops, bring them home, but reframing the issue, saying this is an occupation, for example. Mm-hmm. We need to end the occupation. Don't talk about support our troops at all. Say we need to end the occupation. That reframes the dialogue. Right. Uh, not just reframe it, but then get that frame to propagate. Get that frame to get recontextualized on a mass scale, and then you're talking. Uh, how you get there, that's very difficult. Sure. Uh, very, very difficult. But if you're just thinking about critique and recognizing and finding propaganda and detecting it like some kind of machine, I think, good for you, but it doesn't help. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. John, we want to say again, thank you so much for being with us. This has been a really enlivening conversation. Thanks so much, John. And, and we will uh, put people uh, in, in touch with all the different ways they can get your book and learn more about your work. Alex, any last words? Um, just keep on fighting the good fights uh combat propaganda reframe the issue uh, and support our tropes and support our tropes support our tropes (laughs) (laughs) thanks thanks so much thank you guys our show today was produced and edited by calvin pollock alex helberg caitlin rossi and colleen stone reverb's co-producers are ryan mitchell sophie wadzik and alona alden You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.